Well, last week we finished studying uh, chapter 1 of Luke, which brings us to chapter 2 this morning, which is very familiar to many of you, I'm sure, because it deals with the birth of Christ. You might have been wondering, what in the world are we doing singing a Christmas carol? I mean, December is done. I mean, how early do we have to start? Well, I threw that in there, asked uh, Colson to do that, because we are dealing with Jesus' birth this morning, and that song is just very powerful, and just kind of the lyrics of that share a lot about what we'll be looking at this morning. So uh, I'm sure this is a, a familiar passage. You know, uh, as I mentioned in my testimony the very first week that we started, that I'm a pastor's kid, and so you know I grew up in the church, and I started hearing uh, this story from a, a very very young age. And um, you know, I, I I got this story, and you know, I was told about Jesus in a manger, and and I didn't really have a clue what a manger was, but I got a coloring page, a, uh, something kind of like this, and so that made me happy, but. I didn't really get anything about it. I just thought, oh, cool, you know, I get to color. That's great. And when I get a little older, uh, the story was told again, but this time more with kind of animated cartoon pictures and, you know, kind of looked like that. You had the, the angel Gabriel. And I don't know about you, but I always found like the angel Gabriel looked pretty girly for a man. But, you know, every time he shows up, people get scared. I don't think I'd be scared of that. But, um, you know, then there was Mary and Joseph, obviously uh, baby Jesus' parents. And so, you know, you have the little... Uh, like my animations here, huh? Uh, obviously, the, the, the journey uh, on the donkey, so that's a, another part of uh, the story that I had. And, of course, uh, you can't have a Christmas story without the wise men. And, and what are they looking at and seeing? Well, they followed the star, and so you have to have the star, and you got the shepherds. And uh, the most important scene of all is the scene with baby Jesus in the manger uh, with some animals around him. And, you know, at that age, I had a lot of storybooks, uh, and those storybooks had a lot of animals pictures, but I knew those storybooks that I read weren't real. Uh, and so it was hard for me growing up when I saw all this stuff to really think about this as a real historical event as opposed just to another fictitious story that I had, you know, with all my other books and things. And, you know, when I got a little older, there was no longer the coloring sheets and the animated things. And then it was the real thing, the Christmas pageants. You go see people act it out. And, you know, being a pastor's kid, I definitely was involved in many of those Christmas pageants myself, sometimes not willingly. But uh, my mom tells me that the little drummer boy was my best performance. Back then I could break glass. My voice was so high before it changed. But uh, I still enjoy watching Christmas pageants. I think they're fun to watch. And there was one Christmas pageant that I wish I was at, Uh, I read a story about a Christmas pageant here in Houston. I'm not totally sure if this is true or not, but the person who wrote the story wrote it as if it was true. Part of me definitely hopes that it was. Um, Several years ago, there was this big push to have the biggest and the best Christmas pageant ever. Uh, And here in Texas, you know, people want to have the biggest and best. But Houston and these big churches, they kind of were competing to see who could do the best job. And there was a church in Houston uh, that decided, you know what, we want it to be super realistic. And if it's going to be real, Realistic, then we got to have the real deal. So they got a real baby to play Jesus. They got real animals. Uh, they got a real donkey for Mary to ride. But, you know, other people have done that. But they're like, you know what? We want 
real angels who can fly. And so they rigged up this harness uh, and they were going to have their angel fly down over the crowd and then sit there in the air and speak to the shepherds. And they thought, you know, this will just be the best thing ever. So the pageant starts, the crowds arrive, everything's going well, and it's time for the scene where the angel comes and the shepherds are there and he's flying over the crowd. And so, you know, this angel in his harness is going down and all of a sudden, he gets stuck. Now, the guys controlling this realize we got a problem. So they start pulling on the wires and things, trying to get him loose. And instead of getting him loose, all it does is just start spinning him around in circles. Now, they had to get someone who was licensed to do this. So the guy who was up there playing the angel, he wasn't a Christian. He was just a guy who knows how to fly in harness. So he's getting all upset and he's starting to swear at the guys controlling things. And so they're now pulling even more because the last thing you want in your Christmas pageant is an angel flying overhead, cussing around the crowd. So that doesn't really send the, the Christmas message that you want to send. So the guys are pulling this rope and the guy's spinning more and more. And then all of a sudden he starts to get sick uh, going around a circle over and over and over, uh, and eventually he throws up on the people below him, and the next day there's an article in the Houston Chronicle, uh, and the title of the article is, Angel Has Something Other Than Good Tidings of Great Joy, uh, with him throwing up on the crowd. Now, as I mentioned, I'm not sure that's true, but I do, uh, part of me hopes that it is, but I say that because I think sometimes we, we get this once upon a time story told so often that you know, we forget maybe that this is a literal event that happened. It's a historical event that took place. It's not just some story or some pageant. or you know, This is something that really transpired. And Luke, who is a great historian, he's recording these historical events with true people that went through the things that we're going to be looking at this morning. And you know, this is one of the most amazing amazing parts of history that we have. God becoming man. We're going to be looking at that. Uh, And so I want us to look at the details surrounding the birth of Jesus. First, remembering this is an event that actually took place, but also trying to keep in mind, you know what? These are real people who went through this. Because I think we kind of paint a really nice picture of what this would have been like. And I want us to kind of go through this and think about, you know, if you were Mary especially and had to deal with this, this would not have been nice at all. Uh, And so I want us to try to get a realistic perspective of what transpired with the people who went through this. Uh, And at the end, we're going to be focusing on a group of people that oftentimes don't get the main focus of this message. But we're going to be looking at the shepherds uh, and we're going to see some things that they do that I think is going to be a good challenge to us. So... Let's start here, uh, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Let's see what Luke has to tell us about Jesus' birth. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. So Luke starts off this account of Jesus' birth telling us when the event took place. And once again, I think this just reminds us of this is a real historical event. It actually took place and Luke is giving us the time frame and who was governing at this time to try to help us when these things took place. But uh, Luke tells us this took place after a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
Now, oftentimes when we look at this story, we, we don't really spend much time focusing on Caesar Augustus. You know, we focus on Mary, on Joseph, on baby Jesus, on the shepherds, on the wise men. But we kind of just blow through this first verse real quick and we're like, eh, Caesar Augustus, that's fine. But you know what? Caesar Augustus actually plays quite a vital role in the birth of Jesus. Uh, this man had extreme power, uh, and we're going to see that he has a, a real significant influence over where Jesus is born. And so uh, I want us to take a look at this because Luke's readers, you know, Luke didn't have to give a bunch of background on Caesar Augustus. He was the man in power, just like I would need to give you background information of Barack Obama or someone that's in power today. You hear about it all the time. They would have known him. They would have known how he came into power. So Luke doesn't need to give that information, but that happened 2,000 years ago. So I'm going to give us a little bit of history about this man, Caesar Augustus, because I think that what the Lord does with him is quite significant in how it relates to the birth of Jesus. So Caesar Augustus was born in 63 B.C., uh, but his name was Octavian when he was born. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. So there's probably uh, a name that you are familiar with. In 44 B.C., Julius Caesar was murdered, and after that happened, Octavian and Mark Antony battled for control over Rome. This battle for control over Rome lasted for 10 years, uh, and then finally ended in 31 BC at the Battle of Actium. Now, Mark Antony married Cleopatra, probably another person you're familiar in history. They joined forces to try to defeat Octavian and his army. Mark Antony and Cleopatra brought to Actium, to this place, 500 warships, 100,000 foot soldiers, and 12,000 cavalry. Octavian, he answered that with only 400 warships, 80,000 foot soldiers, and 12,000 cavalry. But... He had less warships, he had less soldiers, but he had a better military plan. Uh, they ended up winning that war, uh, and at that time, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, after they lost that battle, they both committed suicide. So in 27 BC, Octavian changes his name to Caesar Augustus, and now is the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. Caesar, after his adopted father, Julius Caesar, and Augustus, which is a title that means of the gods. So he thought very highly of himself. But up to this point in time in Rome, uh, Rome was a public, a republic sorry, that was governed by a senate. But Caesar Augustus made Rome into an empire, which was ruled and governed by the emperor himself. So you had the Senate that ruled everything, and now he's the sole ruler, he's the emperor, he's changed it all, and now he's ruling and reigning over everyone. Some of you are probably thinking, wait, that's the story for Star Wars. Well, this Star Wars was <laughs> fictitious, this one is real, um, so George Lucas probably ripped this off. But, uh, so the first emperor of Rome is Caesar Augustus. He ruled from 27 B.C. until his death in 14 A.D. Now, he was the most powerful man at that time. And actually, historians say that there was no one up to that time as powerful as him because no one ever had the power to control the entire world at the time. There's still no one today with that kind of power. Every ruler we have, you know, we have Barack Obama as our president. He has power over the United States and maybe a few other countries, but he definitely does not have power over the whole world. You look at other kings and other rulers and other countries, they might have power within their country, but to have power over the entire world, 
We haven't seen that through history very often, except through we see here with Caesar Augustus. Now think of this. He sends out, a re- he sends out everybody needs to be registered. In the entire world, you have to go to the place of your birth and be registered. And he has so much power that everybody has to do it because the Roman army controls the world. You don't listen to Caesar, you die. Uh, and so this man has extreme power and the world now has to follow. And when you think of that, because he says, hey, everybody's got to register. And now the reason he wanted everybody to register is because they wanted to get more taxes. And so one command given by this man and the world has to respond. This is quite significant, uh, and it's important, because you might think, well, who cares? Caesar Augustus, who cares that he has his power? Who cares that he can say a command and everybody in the world has to follow? What does that have to do with what we're talking about here? Well, it's very significant when you think about where Jesus is born. Because Jesus' parents didn't grow up in Bethlehem. They lived in, anyone know? Nazareth. Nazareth. Good. So let's see now what Joseph, uh, what Luke tells us about Mary and Joseph here. Verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So here we're told, Caesar Augustus makes this decree, and it impacts Joseph and Mary. They live in Nazareth, but now they have to travel to Bethlehem. Why? Because that is where Joseph is from, where he was born, and this decree sends him back there. Now you might think, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, Nazareth is... To the north, Bethlehem to the south, it's an 80-mile journey, not on roads like we have that are nice and paved, but this would not have been a very safe journey. This would have gone through mountain regions, through desert regions. Uh, And I want you to think about as well, they didn't have cars back then, so you basically either walk or you have to ride on an animal like a camel or a donkey. And also keep in mind the most important detail about this. Well, first I'll say, for those of you who kind of need a reference of how far 80 miles is, if you go from here down to Galveston Beach and you come back, that's about 80 miles, about 40 there, 40 back. Uh, so that's about the distance of uh, what's going on here. But keep in mind that Mary is at the end of her pregnancy. Now, for those of you ladies who have given birth, uh, you know that at the end of your pregnancy, it is not a very comfortable time. Uh, Jenny has had two children, and so uh, I've learned a little bit about pregnancies and uh, what she's going through, as she tells me. But we went to a class when Jenny was first pregnant with Scarlett, and they were you know, telling us all that we need to prepare for. And, and one of the things they did is they showed us all these pictures of a woman's insides from when she conceives all the way till she's nine months pregnant. And it is mind-boggling to see these organs and where they go because they all just get pushed in all sorts of directions. And your bladder, which is nice and round at the end, is just flat like a pancake, which is why pregnant ladies always need to use the restroom. But, um, you know, but Jen, you know you, you, they show why your back hurts. They show all these things. But when you're looking at that, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, how horrible uh, that would be, very, very painful. Uh, and so you know, they're, they're showing us all these things. And you know, obviously, when Jenny gets to about eight months, nine months, I'm, I'm hearing from her just the groans and things and you know we would try to drive as little as possible because whenever I'd hit a little bump in the road or a little pothole you know I would hear this groan sometimes I hear this scream uh, and she's in a nice comfortable seat in a car and we're driving with shocks on a you know relatively good paved road not on the roads that Mary would have been traveling on and Mary's probably sitting on some kind of uncomfortable 
animal. So imagine being Mary, you're nine months or you know, close to giving birth, you're at the end of your pregnancy, uh, all these different pains are already there because of it, uh, and now you have to travel 80 miles. Most scholars say that it probably would have taken them five to seven days to make that journey. One, because they go so slow, uh, because of her being pregnant, but just that journey was very treacherous. You'd never wanted to travel at night, uh, and so it would have been a slow process. So imagine a whole week of having to go through this at the end of your pregnancy, and I'm sure it wasn't you know, a fun trip for Joseph either, um, but you know, if, if I told Jenny in the last month of her pregnancy, you know what, hey... We're going to go down to Gavelston and back, but we're going to walk. Or, you know what, you can ride the animal that's, uh, that we got here. How about the donkey? You know, she'd be like, absolutely not. There's no way you're getting me on anything to go down there unless she was forced to. Uh, and that's ultimately what we see here. Mary was forced to travel this journey. It's not something she would have chosen to do. It's something that she, I'm sure she would have absolutely said, I have no desire to go to Bethlehem. I'm not going. But she had to go because of, hey, We have this emperor who says, you better go or else there's huge consequences. So she was forced to go with Joseph to make this journey for 80 miles. Now, I think that's even more significant when you think about what the Bible had to say about where Jesus was born. You think, okay, well, you know, Mary, Joseph, they were forced to leave Nazareth, travel 80 miles down to Bethlehem. But way before... God ever came and visited Mary way before any of this happened, God promised that there would be a Messiah. Before He promised Mary that, hey, you're going to have a baby, in the Old Testament we have 315 different prophecies that are speaking about the coming Messiah, where He'd be born, how He would live, how He would die, all these different things about His life, 315 of them in the Old Testament. One of them gives something very specific. The prophet Micah, 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Micah prophesies this. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says this, But you, Bethlehem, though you were little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. There's only one from everlasting who's always existed, and that's God himself. This is speaking about the Messiah saying, Bethlehem, you're going to be blessed because the Messiah is going to be born in your city. So God told 700 years before Jesus was born where he would be born. Now, this is significant now as you think of Caesar Augustus. He makes this decree that forces Mary and Joseph to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. But you know what? This was no coincidence. God knew exactly what was going to happen. God knew that Caesar Augustus would do this. God knew that this uh, decree would go out. God knew where Mary and Joseph would end up. And that's why God, 700 years before, could prophesy and say, hey, this is where the Messiah would be. Luke Chapter 2, verse 6 says this. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for Mary to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So after they make this long journey, 80 miles down, probably a week-long journey that they go through, they finally get to where they're going. And I'm sure Mary is just like, I just need somewhere to rest. I need somewhere to lay down. This has been so horrible because it's not like on the way they have some great hotels to stop at. You're laying most likely on dirt and rocks all this time. And so I just want a bed. And they get there. And we know the story. There's no 
room for them in the end. There's nowhere for them to go. And she's about to give birth. And the last thing she wants is to be outside still and says, oh my goodness, it couldn't end any worse than this. So there's no room for them. And we're told that they end up in this stable, uh, a shelter for animals. Verse 7, then she has the baby, wraps him in swaddling clothes, and lays him in a manger. Now, often we hear this part of the story and we think, oh, how sweet, baby Jesus all wrapped up in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Oh, that must be so nice. And, you know, we get this kind of picture in our mind of, oh, he's got his little lambs next to him and he's on, you know, the hay. And, oh, that would have been so sweet. I wish my baby had that opportunity to be in that. You know, we we kind of get this unrealistic picture of how sweet it would be because we've kind of (laughs) mixed up our story over the years and we haven't looked at it realistically. When I was in Israel, they showed us mangers. Mangers were not made out of wood. They were made out of, like, brick. This is a manger, and a manger is a feeding trough. You put a bunch of oats or wheat or whatever it in to feed your animals, and so you've got animal slobber and vomit and all sorts of nastiness all over that. And, you know, I can't imagine taking Scarlet or Eden when they were first born and, and placing them in a manger. You know, it's not some sweet, nice little thing. It was just all they had. You know, they're in a stable, and all right, well, where are we going to put baby Jesus? Well, let's try to clean that out a little bit, I guess. That's the only place they had to go. It wasn't some nice, nice thing. Uh, it would have been probably pretty disgusting. Uh, so Jesus was born in a stable with animals and placed uh, in this manger where the animals ate, ate out of. And, you know, we've heard this story so many times, but, you know, there's something that always jumps out at me when I hear this. And the thing that jumps out at me is that God does things very differently than I would. I want you to imagine, before Jesus' birth, God comes to you and says, you know what, I want you to plan how Jesus is going to be born. You get to plan where it's going to happen, who's going to show up, what's going to take place. So that's on you. How are you going to do it? Now, I'm pretty confident that none of us would have come up with this plan. Oh, well, let me tell you guys, I got the perfect plan. All right, you know, we're going to have them go on this horrible journey, and then when they get to where they're going, there's not going to be any place for them. So you know what? Jesus is going to be born in a stable with animals, and then we're going to place him in a feeding trough. What do you think? I mean, none of us would have come up with that plan. I mean, if it was up to me, uh, you know, I would have been like, okay, baby Jesus, son of God, king of kings, uh, let's have him born in the nicest palace, with the best medical care, uh, and then have him taken care of. And after he's born, we're going to send out people all over the world to tell about the fact that the Messiah, the King, is born and, and let them know. But that's not the way that God chose to do things. Which makes me think about Isaiah 55, verse 8, a very good passage to remember. It says, For my thoughts, God speaking, are not your thoughts, nor are... Your ways, my ways, says the Lord. I think something important for us to realize about God is that He thinks different than us. He acts different than us. Uh, His timing is different than us. You know, so often we get frustrated with God because He isn't doing things in the time frame that we would or He isn't doing things the way that we would. Uh, And we need to realize He knows what He's doing. He's God, and His thoughts aren't ours, His ways aren't ours. He, he does things differently than us. That shouldn't surprise us. Actually, we should expect it because the Bible tells us that. 
But sadly, I think oftentimes we think we know so much better. Lord, Lord, no, 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 I got the plan here, and if you'll just do it my way, it's the best way. Because, come on, you know, I got this great plan, and just do it like this, and if you do it now, because that's the timing I want, then, then that's definitely the best time. And instead of realizing that, hey, God, your plan is best, your way is best, your timing is best, and I think so often we foolishly choose to trust in ourselves in the ways that we think instead of trusting in God, trusting in the one who has all knowledge of everything, and say, you know what, I trust that you know better than me. I trust that you know the situation, that you know what's going on, and that you're going to deal, deal with it much better than I ever could. He's the one who's all-powerful. We're not. He's the one who's perfect and sinless. We're not. So we need to trust Him and believe that He knows what's best. Well, now Luke's going to share about a, a group of people that we oftentimes don't focus enough on, in my opinion, and that is the shepherds. Uh, so let's see what we can learn here about the shepherds, starting in verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now, if we were given the responsibility to kind of establish and, and do things with Jesus' birth, this might be something that we would have chosen. Hey, I got a great idea. Let's have angels declare this, and then a bunch of angels start singing. You know, that might have been something that we would have said, yeah, that sounds pretty good. The group that the angels declare this to and the time that the angels declare it probably wouldn't be what we would have chosen. Now, notice we see the angels come to shepherds. Now, shepherds lived out in the fields, out away from people. They were kind of loners. They just kind of hung out with sheep. They didn't really have a huge amount of interaction with the regular city folk. And so that probably wouldn't be the people that we would have chosen to say, hey, we're going to declare this message. Let's pick the loners out in the fields. And then the time frame. All right, at night in the middle of fields where just shepherds are is where the angels come. Now, for me, I would go in rush hour in the middle of the city where the most people are and declare this message where the most people could hear it. But once again, we see that God does things differently than we do. Now, this, the shepherds are there. They're watching over their flock. And all of a sudden, this angel appears to them and the glory of the Lord shines around them. And as we so often see when an angel appears, they get afraid. They've never seen anything like this. They're freaking out. And right away, tells them not to be afraid. And you know what? I have a great message. I have good news for you. The good news that the angel gives them is, There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And you know what? There's a sign to help you find this baby. The sign is, you're going to see and find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, the reason this was a sign is because people didn't do this. 
You know, it's like, here's going to be the only baby that you're going to see wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a feeding trough. You're not going to see any other babies in feeding troughs today, so just go look for the baby in the feeding trough, and you'll know it's baby Jesus. You know, because that's where people, they didn't put their babies there, uh, so this was a clear sign of, this is, you're going to see that, you're going to be like, oh, okay, that's Jesus, baby feeding trough, we got it. So the angels tell the shepherds, here's a sign for you to find the baby, um, and then we're told that, all of a sudden, this multitude of angels comes and starts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. Now, the shepherds might not have been the group that we would have chosen. Oh, you know, the kind of loners. You know, we should have chosen the dignitaries or chosen whoever. But when you see the response that they have right here, I think we realize, you know what? God knew what he was doing. These guys actually have a really good response to the message that they're given by the angels. Verse 15 says this, So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this Christ. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. So the angels appear and then they go away and the shepherds are left with this great message, this good news of, hey, today there's born a Savior and there's a sign. You're going to find this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And notice their response. The first thing that they do is they say to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And then we're told, and they came with haste. I think this is a great first response here that we see from these shepherds. They're they're given this message, this news from God, and right away they say, you know what, let's act upon this. Let's go and see, let's go and investigate, and let's go right now. Let's go quickly, let's go in haste and do what God has told us to do. I think this is a great example because, you know, when God speaks to us, we should have this heart to want to respond by seeking it out, by seeing it, by investigating it, and by doing it with haste, quickly. I don't know about you, but, you know, I'm sure a lot of us struggle with a little bit of procrastination. And and oftentimes God speaks and He shares something that's important. He shares something that's good. He shares something that, you know, is a challenge for us to do or or something that we need to take on board. And we think, yeah, that's, that's really good, God. I need to do that maybe tomorrow. Maybe next week, maybe next month, maybe next year, uh, I'll start you know, the process of that. Fortunately, the shepherds are like, wow, that's a, that's a great message. You know, maybe we'll go check out you know, Bethlehem and next month or something. Maybe we'll, we'll go see this you know, sometime in the future. Man, they just said, they got and they left. And most likely, they left their livelihood, their shepherds, their sheep. They didn't bring their sheep with them. You know, they just charge into the city and go see what's going on. And so you know, they're running to quickly go do this. And I think they're a a good example to us in that. But um, we also find two things that the shepherds do after they go. They see the sign. They see this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. They find Mary and Joseph. And then we're told they respond in two different ways. And I think both of these ways are, are very good examples to us. Notice the first response is there in verse 17. We're told, Now when they had seen him, speaking of Jesus... They made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. 
So after the shepherds find baby Jesus, they see him, they recognize, whoa, this is the Messiah, this is the Christ, this is the Savior. Notice their response. They go out and they make widely known to everyone that they can share with this wonderful news, this message about the Savior being born. Remember the saying which was told them, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We're told that they're going out and they're sharing that message with all these people there in Bethlehem. So when the shepherds see baby Jesus, they made widely known the Savior had been born. They go out and they tell this huge amount of people and we're told all those who heard it, all those who heard this message from the shepherds marveled at those things which were told them. They hear this message, they're just kind of blown away by, whoa, the Savior is now born, He's now here. You know, I think what these shepherds did is a wonderful example to us. After they hear the good news of the Savior, after they go and see it for themselves, believe it for themselves, they then respond by going out and sharing it with others. They don't just say, oh, wow, we got to see this, let's go back and watch the sheep, and we'll just kind of keep this to ourselves, we got this great message, and, and that's nice. But no, they say, man, we've seen the Savior, we believe that He's born, we believe that He's here, and now we want to go out and proclaim that to as many people as we can. We want to go out and share this good news with others. You know, for those of us who have heard the good news of our Savior Jesus Christ, and who have believed that, who have accepted that. That should be our desire. That should be our response, that we want to go out, like the shepherds did, and share this with others. That we want to go out and proclaim this good news and not just keep it to ourselves and say, you know, I'm so happy that I've accepted Jesus. I'm so happy that He saved me. But you know what? I'm not going to tell anybody about it. I'm just, you know, I'm just happy that it's mine and I can just hold on to it. And you know, how selfish of us you know, to have that mindset, but instead to be like these shepherds and make this known. You know, if you remember at our first Sunday service a couple weeks ago, I shared with you our vision. Uh, and one part of our vision is to save the lost. That's the first part of our vision. It's our desire to be, as a church, those who get out into the community and share the gospel and reach out with this wonderful good news of what Jesus has done for us. And, you know, in order for that vision to be accomplished, all of us need to take that seriously. All of us need to recognize this is something that we need to be a part of doing, reaching our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, going and sharing with people that God has placed in our path the good news of what Jesus has done for us. So after finding Jesus the Savior, the first thing the shepherds do is make widely known the fact that the Savior has been born. And now notice the second thing they do, which I think is also a good example to us here in verse 20. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. So the second thing the shepherds do in response to hearing about the Savior being born, they first tell a bunch of people about it, but then they also respond glorifying and praising God for the work that He's done, for sending the Savior to the world. This is a response they have. We just want to praise you, God. We want to glorify you, God, for doing this for us. And I think once again, these shepherds do something that's a great example to us. Our response to what Jesus did on the cross, our response to God sending His Son for us, should be a response not only of telling others about it, but one that we want to say, Lord, I just want to glorify You. I want to praise You. I want to worship You for what You've done for me. And I find, as I've been a pastor for a while, when people first accept this, this is kind of a very natural response. Two things that they naturally want to do. They want to tell others about it, and they want to worship and praise God for it. Sadly, statistically says, after two years... 
most Christians rarely ever share their faith again. In those first two years, that's when people are like, oh, I want to tell everybody what God's done. And you know what? Also in those first two years is when people are much more prone to say, I just want to worship God for what he's done for me. I don't know what it is that as time goes by, that just doesn't seem to be as significant to us as Christians, which is sad. That event that transformed our life, what Jesus has done for us, you know, it seems to be something that we hold on to more and don't share, and that we don't really respond with worship and glorifying God the way that we once did. And so I'm sure when you first got saved, there was this heart desire to say, I just want to worship God. I just want to praise Him for saving me of my sin. And and that sin was just so clear. And you just saw your life and what God has done to transform it. And it was just natural to say, I just want to praise you. But then as the years go by, maybe that has kind of changed. Maybe there's not that desire. And that's something I would challenge you that even if it's not something that you feel, just to recognize God's worthy. And just do it. Even if you don't feel like it, just do it and watch what He'll do as you proclaim the worship and the praise to Him that He so much deserves. I think Psalm 67 is a great, great thing, a great challenge for us. I'll read verses 1-7. through It's just a, a challenge for us in worshiping God. It says, God be merciful to us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us that Your way may be known on earth, Your salvation among the nations. Let the people praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For You shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. Then the earth shall yield her increase, God. Our own God shall bless us. God shall bless us. And all the ends of the earth shall fear Him. I think that's just a great challenge that we should just praise the Lord. He is so worthy of it. Now, as we look at the birth of Jesus and the fact that God sent His Son for us, you know, it should cause us to praise Him. It should cause us to want to declare to the world what He's done for us. And I want us to close this morning taking up this challenge uh, to put some of this into practice. But I, I want to share something with you because just... Personally, and as a pastor, I've discovered something. I've discovered that when we try to make our application of God's Word really general, you rarely follow up with it. When you're looking at God's Word and you're thinking, you know, how do I want to apply this to my life? And it's just a real general application. It's not very specific. There's not really much of a plan of how you're going to do it. Usually, it doesn't happen. I know that's been true in my life. I know as a pastor and I hear people and, oh, they just have these general things. And then, you know, so how's that been going for you? Well, I haven't really done it. Uh, And so you've probably discovered that. And so if our application from this is, you know what? We just need to share the gospel more with people. We need to be more like the shepherds and just, you know, try to share with more people. If it's just really general, the reality is you're probably not really going to do much with that. You'll leave maybe with a little conviction of, I don't share enough. Or maybe, you know, I'm doing pretty good and I want to do better. But at the end of the day, if it's not specific, what I have discovered is we usually don't really put it into practice very much. And so I want to try to get a little more specific this morning. If you have paper and pen, I'd encourage you to get it out. Or if you have your phone where you can put some names in. Uh, What I want you to do is I want you to think of five people. Five people that you know that you're pretty confident are not Christians, that have not accepted Jesus Christ, uh, maybe don't even know the gospel, never heard it. Uh, Those are the people that you want to see the Lord reach, people that you want to see get saved. I want you to think of those five people. If you have more than five, great, but that's just the initial challenge. I want you to write those names down. So just think through that. Family, friends, co-workers, 
neighbors, whoever it may be. It could be someone that you regularly see in a checkout at Walmart. or I don't care. It's just someone that you feel like, you know what, I want to be reaching this person. As you're thinking about those names, the, the challenge that I want you to take on board, I want you to try to commit to doing three things. First commitment is to pray for that person every day for the next month. Or all five of those people, should I say. Now, this doesn't have to be some super long prayer, especially if they're not believers. Then your main prayer is just going to be, God, I want you to just soften this person, help them to be open to the gospel, because my heart's desire is that they would accept it. Uh, And so, you know, but I would say commit every day for the next month to pray uh, for these people. So that would be the first thing to commit to. Second, uh, why that's so important to pray that God would prepare them for the gospel is because the second challenge is that you would actually share the gospel with them. Uh, I would encourage you to take a good week of prayer before you engage in that. Let the Lord start working in them, working in their heart. But uh, the second challenge would be for all five of these people that you would take an opportunity to share with them the gospel, to share with them what Christ excuse me, has done for them. And I would encourage you to add your testimony to that, to share with them, hey, this is what Jesus has done in my life. This is how he's transformed me, uh, and just uh, be able to share the, with them. And third, invite them to church. So pray for them every day for a month, share the gospel with them, share your testimony with them, and invite them to church. Now, I'm confident if you take up this challenge, you have these five people that you're praying for, that you're sharing with, that you're inviting, you're going to be quite surprised to see what God will do. I think so often we, we kind of, you know, ah, God's not going to move in this person. I mean, come on, look at this person. And, uh, you know, we, we look at different people. And I have had people in my life where I prayed for them for five years or ten years and thinking, they're never going to change. Nothing's ever going to happen. And all of a sudden, boom, the Lord works. They get saved. I mean, I love, you know, Saul who turns into Paul. And I love his testimony because the guy went around killing Christians he hated them. He was killing Christians, and then he becomes one of the greatest, most you know, powerful missionaries God's ever used. But right when he gets saved, people don't want to have anything to do with him because they think he's going to come here to our churches, and he's going to imprison us, and he's going to kill us like he always has been. They were just like, there's no way that guy changed. There's no way that guy has been transformed. They, you know, it took a while for them to really believe it, and they finally saw, whoa. This guy who was killing Christians has now become an on-fire Christian for Jesus. And so God can change anyone. Uh, and I think that's an encouragement. But, you know, just remember, maybe you've been praying for someone. Maybe you have a loved one you've been praying for for a long time, and nothing seems to be changing. Well, keep praying. Share with them. Keep praying. Invite them to church. See what the Lord will do. So if you have those names written down, great. If you haven't finished, you can finish later. Because I just want to finish this morning taking some time just to pray together. If you want to pray, I encourage you to do it. I'm going to close us in prayer. Uh, I'm going to ask Lee if he wouldn't mind opening us in prayer. Uh, and you know what? If you don't want to pray for someone specifically by their name, that's fine. You can just pray, you know, my friend, my family member, my coworker, whatever. Uh, God knows who they are. And, and I just want to do it together so that we can join with you and just praying for the Lord to work in the lives of these people that we want to see come to know him. So we're just going to take some time. Lee's going to open us. I'll close us. I'll leave some time for any of you who want to pray. You don't have to pray. uh, But if you do, we just want to join with you, uh, lifting these people up before the Lord. uh, And um, we'll just do that together. So 